You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. Two angels entered Sodom, and in the evening, as Lot was sitting in Sodom's gateway, when Lot saw them, he got up to meet them. He bowed with his face to the ground and said, My lords, turn aside to your servant's house. Wash your feet and spend the night. Then you can get up early and go on your way. No, they said, we would rather spend the night in the square. But he urged them so strongly that they followed him and went into his house. He prepared a feast and baked unleavened bread for them, and they ate. Before they went to bed, the men of the city of Sodom, both young and old, the whole population, surrounded the house. They called out to Lot and said, where are the men who came to you tonight? Send them out to us so we can have sex with them. Lot went out to them at the entrance and shut the door behind him. He said, don't do this evil, my brothers. Look, I've got two daughters who haven't been intimate with a man. I'll bring them out to you and you can do whatever you want to them. However, don't do anything to these men because they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of the way, they said, adding, this one came here as an alien, but he's acting like a judge. Now we'll do more harm to you than to them. They put pressure on Lot and came up to break down the door. But the angels reached out, brought Lot into the house with them, and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the entrance of the house, both young and old, with blindness, so that they were unable to find the entrance. Then the angel said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, a son-in-law, your sons and daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this people, this place, because the outcry against its people is so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were going to marry his daughters. Get up, he said, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law, though he thought he was joking. At daybreak, the angels urged Lot on, get up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. Because of the Lord's compassion for him, the men grabbed his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters. They brought him out and left him outside the city. As soon as the angels got them outside, one of them said, run for your lives, don't look back, and don't stop anywhere on the plain. Run to the mountains, or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please, your servant has indeed found favor with you, and you have shown me great kindness by saving my life. But I can't run to the mountains. The disaster will overtake me, and I will die. Look, this town is close enough for me to flee to. It is a small place. Please let me run to it. It's only a small place, isn't it? So that I can survive. And he said to him, All right, I'll grant you your your request about this matter too, and will not demolish the town you mentioned. Hurry up, run to it, for I cannot do anything until you get there. Therefore, the name of the city is Zoar. The sun had risen over the land when Lot reached Zoar. Then out of the sky, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, burning sulfur from the Lord. He demolished these cities, the entire plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and whatever grew on the ground. But Lot's wife looked back and became a pillar of salt. Early in the morning, Abraham went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and all the land of the plain, and he saw that smoke was going up from the land like a smoke of a furnace. 
So it was when God destroyed the cities on the plain, he remembered Abraham and brought Lot out of the middle of the upheaval when he demolished the cities where Lot had lived. Lot departed from Zoar and lived in the mountains along with his two daughters because, because he was afraid to live in Zoar. Instead, he and his two daughters lived in a cave. Then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man in the land to sleep with us, as is the custom of all the land. Come, let's get our father to drink wine so that we can sleep with him and preserve our father's line. So they got their father to drink wine that night, and the firstborn came and slept with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she got up. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Look, I slept with my father last night. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight so you can go sleep with him and we can preserve our father's line. That night, they again got their father to drink wine, and the younger went in and slept with him. But he did not know when she lay down or when she got up. So both Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The firstborn gave birth to a son and called him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites of today. The younger also gave birth to a son, and she named him Benami. He is the father of the Ammonites of today. Thank you. You may all have a seat. Appreciate you reading that, Melanie. Um, let's pray, all right? Let's, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this time that you've given us. Thank you for your word, and thank you for um, even the, the raw, gritty, hard-to-understand hard-to-apply passages of Scripture. May you open up our eyes and our hearts to receive what you have in store for us. And um, if, yeah, if there are barriers to understanding, uh, may you, um, through your Spirit, address those barriers as well. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, there's a video I saw about a month ago um, in which uh, these, this is one of these viral videos in which these uh, people, I think they were comedians in disguise, they were interviewing people on the streets, and uh, maybe you saw it too, but these strangers, um, they were, so they were interviewing these strangers on the street, and these strangers, they were concerned about the fact that uh, a lot of the books that they read in school are graphic, and they have a lot of uh, nasty things going on in them, and, and so they want to ban some of these books from these schools, and so these interviewers, they're trying to make them look silly, so they're like, hey, do you, do you know there's this book out there I've seen in libraries and in a lot of these schools, and it features two daughters having sex with their dad. And, and they get their dad drunk and have sex with them. And then these strangers, they're like, what? That's ridiculous. How can such a book be like being schools? And how horrible. And then the interviewer goes on and, and asks, do you think a book like that should be in a school? And the folks, are, they're getting riled up and they're going, no, absolutely not. Why do kids need to read that? And then here's the kicker. The interviewer goes, that book is actually the Bible. And that's sort of you know, like their way of making fun of them and saying, oh, you want the Bible banned in schools and whatever. So I'm not talking, I'm not here talking about whether the Bible should be banned in schools or whether certain books should be banned in schools. But I think it brings up an interesting point, which is that the Bible has a lot of really strange stuff. And it's the sort of stuff that if, there, if, if it was in another book, a lot of people would be really concerned about that book and whether their kids should be reading those sort of books. And so the question is, why do things like that even exist in the Bible? Why does God allow things like this that's, you know, we read it and, and it comes across as gross and horrible and horrendous and uh, we don't really make sense of it and we even have a tendency to want to skip over it. Why does God allow those sort of things to make it into the Bible? And uh, two of those stories are here in Genesis 19. Okay, so the first story 
is a story, essentially, of a, a, a whole city wanting to commit sexual assault against these two visitors, uh, followed by God destroying these two cities. And then there's another story in which two daughters get their father drunk and have sex with their father. So these are really bizarre stories to us. So why are these stories in the Bible? Can you imagine you're like a, uh, you run like a Christian kid's a publishing company or something like that, and your, your job is to create, uh, you know, flannel board characters, okay? So what are you supposed to do? This, you're, you're assigned this chapter. What sort of, you're probably going to go, you know what, I'm going to skip this chapter, okay? And the thing is, if you've always thought about the Bible as a, like a book of feel-good inspirational stories, like this story, just these stories don't fit, right? If you ever thought about the Bible as, let's say, like a, a theological reference book, these stories also don't fit. Right? So I think it goes to show that the, these stories, or, or, or another way to put it is, the Bible is much more than a feel-good inspirational book or a theological reference book. The Bible intentionally includes some of the most raw and gritty things of, of life. Um, the Bible is a complex book, and it deals with things like evil and suffering and disappointment and wrath. Like These sort of things are in the Bible, and we cannot, I think, as Christians, just brush these things aside because I think God has something to communicate in all of these stories. I think stories like this challenge our assumptions of the Bible and our assumptions of who God is. Um, you know, oftentimes, I think we all do this. We all have this tendency to want to put God in a box. We have this image of who God is, and, uh, and we, we read the stories that we feel like line up with those images, and the stories that don't, we just sort of chalk up to, I guess, you know, whoever wrote this story, they just were having a bad day or something, but that's not part of the God that I worship, you know. But I think the fact that this is in the Bible shows that we need to think about it, and we need to wrestle with stuff like this. Um, and I think one way to think about it is, is this. Life is tough, and there's a lot of harsh realities of life. And if we are going to weather the storms of life, weather these harsh realities— we, it's not enough just to have a book that's filled with feel-good, inspirational stories. It's not enough just to have a book of happy people doing happy things. What we need is a book that has stories about evil, a book where there's stories about failure, a book where there's stories even about fear, because those are the things that life is made of. When you go through life enough, those are the things you encounter. And we need a book that is able to incorporate all of those realities of life. And I think that's what the Bible does. But even so, it's not easy to read this chapter. And I'm just going to, before we dive into the passage, just dissect it a little bit, I want to just uh, put out two big stumbling blocks to this chapter, okay? Two reasons why people may want to skip over this chapter. I want to briefly address those. I'm not going to spend a long time. These can be sermons in the, of themselves. But first off, there's two things, okay? First off, there's a fact that God wipes out two cities, okay? This is, I mean, like in World War II, you know, we dropped two atomic bombs on Japan, and it's not at that level. But, you know, when even Americans, when we think about that, even though we won that war, many of us, we shudder at that fact, right? That, that we did that. That, that, was, that was part of our history. And so, what do we do with the fact that God wiped out two whole cities, okay? And the second thing, and this is maybe more controversial depending on who you are, 
is that God wipes out a whole city and many scholars and many Christians will say it's because of the sexual perversion or sexual promiscuity of that city that God wiped out those cities. Okay, so you follow me? So there's two big roadblocks we have, barriers to receiving this story. One is that God wipes out two whole cities, and how can God do that and still be loving? How can, how can God be so full of wrath that he would do something like that? And then secondly, it was the issue sexual sin and what, is that, what do we do with that today? Because we live in an age today in which many of the sins, many of the sexual sins that were around in the Bible, we don't view as sins anymore. And we are to, supposed to embrace those things. So what do we do with that? All right. So I'm going to just address those two really quickly, and then we'll talk about the sermon. So first off, how can a God be so wrathful? Um, isn't God supposed to be loving? I'm going to quote uh, this guy named Miroslav Volf. He uh, wrote this book called Free of Charge. And Wolf, he's a theologian. And he was born in what used to be Yugoslavia. And it was a country torn apart by war. And, uh, and, and in this book, he's writing about God's wrath. And I think it's kind of fascinating. So I'm just going to read it. He says, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love and God loves every person and every creature. But that's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda. In the last decade of the past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in, the, in 100 days, how did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? Or by refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. And catch this. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Um, some of us may have felt a taste of this sort of wrath in our own lives. Uh, maybe uh, when you hear about, let's say, an innocent woman being sexually abused by a powerful man, you feel a little bit of this wrath. Or maybe when you hear about prominent church leaders or celebrities or politicians, you know, they're acting holy moly in public, but they have some private scandal going on and all of a sudden everybody hears about it. Maybe you feel a bit of that wrath. Maybe you hear about a dictator sending his armies into another country, invading another country, killing innocent people and sending uh, hundreds of thousands of refugees to another country. When you hear about that, maybe you feel a sense of that wrath. And I, I would suggest when things like that happen, if you have a single loving bone in your body, you have to feel wrath. And that wrath isn't wrong. That wrath is a justified wrath. That wrath that you have is there because you are a person of love. Now imagine you are a holy God. You're filled with holiness. You're full, filled with love. When you hear about events like that, I think the same thing must apply, but even to an, a, a more extreme level. 
you're 100% untainted by sin. And so when sin happens at a grand scale, when horrible wickedness occurs, you have to feel wrath. That's part of who you are. You have to feel the sense of you need to make things right. You need to, wrong, you need to right the wrongs. And so you're not wrathful because you are hateful, but because you are loving. Okay, so that's the first thing I want to address, that if we worship a God of love, if we worship a God who cares about his people, then to some degree, God has to be a God of wrath. Okay, so here's the second thing I want to address, which is the issue of sexual perversion, because here's the reality. Uh, This story of Sodom and Gomorrah has been used by many Christians throughout history as evidence that sexual promiscuity is perhaps the most egregious sin that someone can commit. Because there's a lot of sins in the Bible. We, you know, we see that all over the place. But very rarely does God destroy a whole city because of some sin, right? And so somewhere along history, we developed this idea that there's a lot of sins out there and they're really bad, but sexual sin, that's, that's like the worst thing you can do. Because watch out, God's going to destroy the cities. God's going to destroy this nation if we're getting caught up in all these sexual promiscuous, promiscuous things. And so we may say something like, you know what, this natural disaster happened. Maybe not we, but we may hear stuff like, this natural disaster happened in this country. Do you know why? It's because this country has a reputation for sexual promiscuity. Or we may hear stuff like, you know what, this terrorist attack happened in this country. You know why? It's because they legalized gay marriage. So we may hear stuff like that, right? And so what do we do with things like that? Or maybe uh, we may not say those things or believe those things ourselves, but many of us, we've internalized this idea that God is somehow more wrathful towards sexual sin than other sins. And so as a result, in many churches, there is more shame tied to sexual sin than there is with other sins. There's this narrative out there that sexual sin is the kind of sin that is almost unforgivable. That, I mean, God disapproves of all sins, but especially sexual sin. And so is that true? Well, I would say this is a very long conversation, but the short answer is no. I think the Bible is very clear. There is no one sin that is worse than all other sins. If you read, you know, the sort of sins that the the prophets condemn, the sort of sins that Jesus condemns, the sort of sins that Paul condemns, it's, I don't think you can make the case that sexual sin is worse than all the other sins, okay? But I want to take this one step further because Sodom has a reputation of being a city known for sexual sin, but if you do, and that's why even the word sodomy comes from this, the city, Sodom. But if you were to do a sincere Bible study, I think it's more complicated than that. And I think it's, it's not clear that sexual sin was the main sin of the city of Sodom. Okay, I want to look at a few passages. The first is Genesis 18, 20 to 21. This is from last week. God is sharing with Abraham, Abraham about how he's going to destroy these cities. And he gives his reasoning for why he's going to destroy Sodom. Okay, this is what he says, verse 20. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense, and their sin is extremely serious. I will go down to see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. If not, I will find out. So notice this language. So God is talking about how he's going to destroy the cities. And his reasoning is, he doesn't, no, he doesn't say anything about sexual sin. He says the outcry against these cities is immense, and these cries have come up to me. Now, what does that mean? Well, usually when this sort of language is used in the Bible, it's talking about injustice. Okay, we see this in a few, few different places. In Genesis 4, for example, Cain kills his brother Abel, 
And then it said, and God said that Abel's blood is crying out to him from the ground. Okay. Because Abel was killed. He was an innocent man. His blood is crying out from the ground. You also see this, for example, in Exodus, when the Egyptians were oppressing the Israelites in Exodus, God said that the cry of the children of Israel have come up to him. Okay. So when, 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 when this language is talking about the outcry, it means that there are people uh, who are being treated unfairly in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they are crying out for help. They're pleading with God for help, and, and, and these, residents are, these residents are crying out, and so God is saying, you know what, I'm going to answer their cry. Okay, so here's another passage. This is Ezekiel 16, 49 to 50. And it says, now this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her brothers had pride, plenty of food, and comfortable security, but didn't support the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable acts before me, so I removed them when I saw this. So I think this is as plain as you can get. God here is also explaining what was the sin of the city of Sodom. And he says it's arrogance, it's selfishness, it's a lack of compassion. They had a lot of wealth, but they did not support the poor and needy. And of course, there is this note about detestable acts. And so we can include sexual sin in that. So sexual sin was a part of that, but it doesn't seem like sexual sin was the main focus. So this fits, I think, our previous passage in understanding Sodom's sin, that there was rampant injustice going on, that the poor were being trampled upon, and these victims were crying out to God for help. Okay, and so you can do a Bible study. We're not going to spend all day doing this. Uh, Jude 7 does highlight Sodom's sexual immorality. So that is a part of it. On the other hand, Isaiah 1 talks about Sodom and they highlight uh, Sodom's religious hypocrisy. And so there's a lot of factors involved. But I think if you were to look at all these passages, I think the answer is that I don't think sexual sin was the main focus. I think if you had to choose a focus, it was probably injustice. But of course, there were all sorts of sins, all sorts of sins that Sodom and Gomorrah possessed. And so what, we, what can we conclude? Okay, we can conclude that sexual immorality, sex outside of God's design is wrong. However, if you fall into sexual sin, don't let that condemn you. You can be free of that sin, just like you can be free of any other sin. You don't have to feel an extra burden of shame, and God loves you still. All right, so that's my point. Um, if you want to talk about these things more, feel free to reach out to me, but... Let's think to the narrative, okay? So we put that aside. If that's a big concern for you, okay, set that aside for now. Talk to me later. Let's dig into this narrative, okay? So in the beginning of the chapter, uh, two angels show up in Sodom. Um, it seems like these angels were hanging out with Abraham in the previous chapter. Now they show up in Sodom. And Lot invites them over to his place. And then let's read. We're just going to read through a bunch of verses and make little comments on them, okay? So Genesis 19, 4 to 5. Before they went to bed, the angels, the men of the city of Sodom, both young and old, the whole population surrounded the house. They called out to Lot and said, where are the men who came to you tonight? Send them out to us so that we can have sex with them. So can you believe this? All right, so the whole city, this could be maybe a slight exaggeration, but it seems like enough people came out so that it's characterized as a whole city, young and old, everyone came out and they want to essentially commit sexual assault together on these angels. So that's pretty messed up. All right, let's see what happens. Verse 6 to 8. Lot went out to them at the entrance and shut the door behind him. He said, don't do this evil, my brothers. Look, I've got two daughters who haven't been intimate with a man. I'll bring them out to you, and you can do whatever you want 
to them. However, don't do anything to these men because they have come under the protection of my roof. Now, some people, you, they may read this and go, okay, Lot is kind of an upstanding dude. He's trying to protect these visitors, except for the fact that he's pimping out his own daughters, okay? So he, do, did you catch this? He's saying, don't mess with these guys, but I have two daughters and they're virgins. Okay, when you, when you read that and you go, that, that doesn't sound very good either. You would be right. That's not very good, okay? So, so we don't know what's going on in Lot's mind, okay? Maybe Lot's always been this messed up, or maybe he used to be a righteous dude and he's been, you know, uh, wrongly influenced by some of the residents of the city, but this is not a noble move, okay? So let's keep going. The people want to get at Lot. Let's skip down to verse 12 and 13. Then the angel said to Lot, do you have anyone else here, a son-in-law, your sons and daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against his people is so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So again, notice the explanation. Why are they destroying this place? The outcry against its people is so great before the Lord. Okay, but let's focus on verse 12. The angels are there to rescue Lot, and they are inviting Lot Save as many people as you can. Find your sons, find your daughters, your sons-in-law, everybody. Bring them out, okay? We're here to rescue you. Let's keep going. Verse 14. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were going to marry his daughters. Get up, he said. Get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. Man, that is, I don't know if he's just, he has a reputation for being a comedian or what, but I can't imagine you're trying to save your sons-in-law, and they just think you're messing with them. But let's keep going. Verse 15, at daybreak, the angels urged Lot on, get up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here. In other words, you can't save everybody, but just save these folks. Okay? Save yourself, save your wife, save your two daughters, or you'll be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. Now we'll get back to that. Because the Lord's compassion for him, the men grabbed his hand, his wife's hand, in the hands of his two daughters. They brought him out and left him outside the city. Now, before the city, we didn't know, I mean, sorry, before this uh, chapter, we didn't know too much about Lot. No, we had that scene where he chose Sodom uh, uh, because it was well watered and it was a fertile land. And we, we read about the scene earlier where he was captured as a prisoner of war and brought back. But we don't really know too much about uh, his moral compass, okay? And uh, whether he was a God worshiper, whether he was devout. But now we're 16 verses in. We can sort of get an idea of who this Lot guy is, okay? Uh, we clearly see he's not an upstanding dude. He was willing to give away his daughters to this crowd, okay? Not a great move. And it doesn't seem like he has a, re a reputation for being a spokesperson for God because when he was telling his sons-in-law to get out of the city, they thought he was joking. And it also seems like he's not even eager to get out of destruction because in verse 16, it says that he hesitates. And why would he hesitate? I think there's a part of him that either he doesn't believe these angels or he doesn't want to leave. He's happy living in Sodom. He's made a career of himself or, or he's made a, a, a living living in Sodom and he doesn't want to leave. So all of this points to a very complicated character. Lot, even though the angels are here to rescue them, he's not even that great of a guy. He barely wants to leave the city of Sodom. And so what do the angels do? You might think they go, if you don't want to leave, that's fine. We'll leave you. You snooze, you lose. Have it your way. But they don't. It says, because of the Lord's compassion for him, the men grabbed his hand. 
And not only that, but also his wife's hand and the hands of his two daughters. And they brought him out and left him outside the city. And it's almost like they forcibly kidnap him. That's what it reads like. It's like he doesn't want to leave, but, but they, like, they force him out of the city to save his own skin, even though he doesn't want to save his own skin. I'm reminded of uh, the scene from the movie The Incredibles. I can't believe, by the way, it was 18 years old now, the movie The Incredibles. Um, a whole grown-up lifespan. But uh, there's, uh, there's a scene where Mr. Incredible... He rescues this dude who's trying to jump off this building, try to commit suicide. And then there's this press conference. It's this black and white image. And uh, Mr. Sansweet uh, uh, and his lawyer are talking to the, the press conference. And the lawyer's like, Mr. Sansweet didn't ask to be saved. Mr. Sansweet didn't want to be saved. And the injuries received from Mr. Incredible's actions, so-called, causes him daily pain. That's like Lot, right? Lot had no desire to be saved. But the angels like forcibly brought him out of the city, even though he didn't want to be saved. It's almost like he wanted to die. He never asked to be saved. He didn't even seem like he wanted to be saved. But the angels forcibly took his hands and the hands of his family members and brought him out. And then to top it off, here's just another bizarre exchange in verse 17. Okay. As soon as the angels got them outside, one of them said, run for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere on the plane. Run to the mountains or you'll be swept away. Okay, so they're already outside the city. Okay, and check out what heroic Lot says, okay? But Lot said to them, no, my lords, please. Your servant has indeed found favor with you and you have shown me great kindness by saving my life. But I can't run to the mountains. The disaster will overtake me and I will die. Look, this town is close enough for me to flee to. It is a small place. Please let me run to it. It's only a small place, isn't it? So that I can survive. And he said, all right, I'll grant you your request about this matter too and will not demolish the town you mentioned. Hurry up, run to it, for I cannot do anything until you get there. Therefore, the name of the city is Zoar. Okay, so basically what's going on is Lot's like, I know I'm supposed to run away and I know you're going to destroy all the cities in the plain, but that's really far away to go to the mountains. It's, I don't really want to go that far. So here's a city over here. Can I just run over here? And maybe just destroy all the other cities, but, but not this one. Is that okay? And the angels actually agree. They're like, okay, this is a pretty foolish request. You're just being lazy. <laughs> but okay, we'll grant this request too. You can go to the city. So they actually, they actually compensate. They compromise to give, you know, to, to allow Lot to be lazy here. Okay. Anyways, fast forward. Lot is saved. His wife isn't. She turns back and becomes salt and there's a lot of scholarly debate about, you know, why this happens and what this means. And uh, I think for a long time, it, it, it seemed like Matt, that, that God just sort of magically turned this woman into salt as a form of punishment. But the more I read this, I don't know if that's the best interpretation. It seems like she is doing what Lot did. She is hesitating and she's considering turning around. And I think this language of her turning into salt is just sort of a a metaphor, metaphorical way of saying she was caught up in the obliteration of the city. So that's, that's what it seems like. I don't think God specifically turned into assault. I think it's just saying that all the people were obliterated, including her. But anyways, let's keep going. At the end of the chapter, uh, Lot's daughter, this is another bizarre scene. Okay, Lot's daughters get Lot drunk, drunk and they sleep with him. And uh, we can spend a long time here, but I'm just going to summarize this, which is, Lot's daughters are also not upstanding people, okay? In the last chapter, Abraham was bargaining with uh, God and, try, and saying, hey, if there's 10 people in the city, can you save the city? And I think the narrative 
of, of, of this chapter is the best family that the city had to offer was full of not upstanding people. You have Lot, okay? Lot showed a lack of concern for his own daughters, willing to sell them under the rug. He showed a lack of urgency, hesitating about leaving the city. He showed a lack of resolve, not wanting to run to the hills. He was just trying to run to the next city over. And we learn at the end of the chapter, his daughters were not great people either. And so on the one hand, you could ask, was it fair for God to destroy this whole city? And I think given the circumstances, given that the outcry of the poor against the city was so immense, given that as we read in other passages, it was filled with arrogance and selfishness and sexual immorality, and given that even its best citizens were also selfish and lazy, seemingly no better than anybody else, seemingly demonstrating no desire whatsoever to be saved, I think there's another question you could ask, which is, was it fair that God saved Lot and his daughters instead of the rest of the city? Was it fair that God was going to destroy the city and he chose to spare this one family that didn't even want to be saved in the first place? There's a song by um, the band Reliant K. Uh, I confess I loved them when I was in high school. Okay? And uh, they have the song called Be My Escape. And there's a line in there that stuck with me, and it goes, The beauty of grace is that it makes life not fair. The beauty of grace is that it makes life not fair. And, um, you know, when I, was in, when I was in college, I worked this desk job. I was like a part-time desk job. And uh, uh, I remember the first day I showed up, and I had this big manual, and I learned about, you know, uh, what I'm supposed to do and what it takes to get fired. And... Uh, <laughs> one of the things that I learned about was if you're late or absent three times, you're going to be fired, okay? And uh, when I was in college, I had a habit of pulling all-nighters and sleeping in, and so sure enough, I was late three times. And um, within the first month, I had three tardies, and I remember being called into my boss's office, and he sat me down, and he just asked what was going on, and, and he asked me some questions, and he's like, don't be late again. You can keep your job. And I remember walking back to my desk and just thinking, wow, what did I do to deserve this? And that's grace. And I remember thinking, in a sense, it's not fair that I wasn't fired because that's what the manual said. But that's what grace means, is you don't follow the manual. And I think we can ask the same question here in Genesis 19. If Lot wasn't an upstanding dude, then why did God save him? Why did God forcibly save him even though he showed no desire to be saved? And I think the closest answer we get is in verse 29, which goes, So it was, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and brought Lot out of the middle of the upheaval when he demolished the cities where Lot had lived. And when I first read this line, I sort of did a double take because I think it, sh- it should have, my initial reaction was, was it should say, So it was when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Lot and brought Lot out of the middle of the middle of the upheaval. But it doesn't say God remembered Lot. It said God remembered Abraham. Now, isn't that strange that God remembered Abraham and as a result, he saved Lot. How does that make sense? What does Abraham's actions have to do with Lot's salvation? Nothing. 
And that's the whole point. That's exactly what grace means. The beauty of grace is that it makes life not fair. God can look at the upstanding record of one individual and apply that to another individual. And that is the radical nature of salvation. That is what the whole gospel is about. This story of salvation that we read about in Genesis 19, it's a little picture of the ultimate story of salvation. You see, we are all like Lot in different ways. We have all lived in sin. We have all chosen to surround ourselves with evil, and we have all resisted in many ways being saved. But the Christian faith that the, the Christian faith teaches us that God entered into our world and he forcibly saved us. We were all like Lot, and the outcry of the sin that we've committed has reached God's ears, and God cannot help himself but to punish, but to bring about wrath. But he didn't want to bring about wrath because he's also a God of love. And so what he chose was he came up with a plan to save us. And again, we're just like Lot, didn't ask to be saved, didn't want to be saved. We just went along with our lives, imitating the habits of the sinners around us. But God intervened. He forcibly saved us. He grabbed a hold of our hand when, he hesi- when we hesitated. Sorry, he, he pulled us out of destruction even when we were on the fence. And why did he do that? Was it because we were upstanding citizens? Was it because we were awesome? No, he did that because he remembered Jesus. God saved us because he remembered Jesus. You see, Jesus on the cross, he took on the wrath of God. All the things that we in our modern culture, we don't like about God, this fire and brimstone stuff, this wrath of God stuff, all the stuff that sort of makes us shudder, that wants, makes us want to skip this chapter, all of that stuff, God laid on the backs of Jesus. Jesus took on all the sulfur, all the fire and brimstone, and then he died on that cross for us. And why? So that when God looks at us, he can remember Jesus. And because of that, we go scot-free. Whenever we are reminded of our sins, Jesus is right there and he goes, the sin doesn't define you anymore. The sin doesn't control you anymore. The sin has no power over you anymore because I paid for that sin when I died on the cross. And I sunk that sin to the bottom of the ocean of grace. Is that fair? No. It wasn't fair for Jesus, an innocent man, to be killed on a cross. And it isn't fair for the world full of sinners to get away scot-free. But the beauty of grace is that it makes life not fair. This kind of grace is irresistible in two ways. It's irresistible in the sense that we didn't ask for it, and it's as if God forcibly saved us. We were just minding our own business, and the spirit penetrated our hearts, allowed us to be aware of our sins, allowed us to want to repent and change. But now that we're also on the other side, it's it's irresistible in another way, which is that it's irresistible in the sense that it's so amazing to us. It's so mind-blowing to us, and we cannot even believe that has happened to us. It blows our mind that Jesus would love us so much that he would die for us, that all, all of the sins that we ever committed, God put on the backs of Jesus. And the more we understand that, the more we fall in love with our Savior, 
the more we cannot resist just being with him. In a moment, we'll be moving into a time of communion, and communion is when we recall this glorious gospel that Jesus died so that we might live, that the wrath and destruction that we deserved was laid on Jesus, and because of that, we get to go free. We get to be saved. And it's not because we were noble. It's not because we were amazing. It's not because we, you know, we even wanted to be saved. It's because God and his love and his providence, he chose us and he brought us out of the city. So uh, we're going to do something similar to last time, last week. We're going to sing a few songs. Uh, We're going to invite you to come to the front during that first song and then grab a communion cup. And then after the first song, uh, someone will come up to the stage and lead us in taking that communion. The bread represents Jesus' body broken for us. The blood represents Jesus's, uh, sorry, the, the wine, the grape juice represents Jesus' blood shed for us. And then we'll take and remember who Jesus is and what he did for us. Let's pray together. Father, um, God, I, I just pray that the reality, that the nature of our salvation, of what actually happened, uh, may be made known to us right now. Because so many of us, God, in the church, we're so filled with pride and arrogance, so filled with uh, legalism, so filled with self-justification and self-righteousness. We look down on all these people who are sinners around us. We pride ourselves for doing the right thing at the right time, making the right choices. But God, this story of Lot is just a a reminder that we made zero contributions to our salvation. We did nothing right, God. There was nothing that we could be proud of that can make us feel better than the person right next to us. We were just as lost as everybody else. We were just as dead as everybody else. We were just unwilling to be saved as everybody else. We were just in love with the world as everybody else, but you intervened in our lives. And only you know why, but you intervened in our lives and you pulled us out and you saved us. And so God, we are forever indebted to you, forever at your feet in recognition of this amazing grace, this amazing mercy you poured out for us, not because of anything we did, but 100% because of what Jesus did. So God, I pray that that truth may radically change our hearts, change our minds, that it would give us the sense of worship, a sense of humility, a sense of gratitude, and even a sense of wanting to save others too to know that if we can be saved, if the worst of sinners can be saved, and so anybody else can be saved as well. We pray that you would give us that heart. Help us to love you, help us to know you more. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.